If you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. We are continuing on in our series, We Are Witnesses. And God's been really using this in my life, and I've been hearing from some others where God is using it to help us to see opportunities before we would have missed. I don't know that any of us have been arrested yet for our faith in Jesus, but Peter and John were. They healed this guy at the temple, as we learned last time, and God used that opportunity to be a powerful witness, and not everybody's happy with the witness. And so what happened is they got arrested, thrown in jail, and then we pick it up in Acts chapter 4. This is the rest of the story. I don't know what you would have done had you been arrested for speaking out about Jesus, but this is what Peter and John did. Acts chapter 4, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. They were greatly, oh, excuse me, I'm reading in the wrong spot. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders for the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Wow, let's pray together. Father, we read stuff like that and we think, what in the world was going on here? Such boldness, such power, such effect, such witness. But this is the very same boldness you want to display today in every member of your church. So God, help us to learn today how the Holy Spirit does this. That we won't be arrogant or boastful or proud or obnoxious, but we'll be bold. We're not on the retreat. We're part of a kingdom that's advancing. We're not living in a, a lie. We have the truth. And I pray you'll help us to be bold with it. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I used to tell people that I was a Raiders fan one time, and then I got saved, and everything changed. <laughs> now, when I, I had to stop doing that because I alienated so many of my Raider fan friends, I had to, I had to quit doing it. They get a little... Get a little intense. Anyway, but I have been to a Raider game once. Years ago when my son Tyler was 10 or 11, he was an ardent Seahawk fan, and the Seahawks were playing the Raiders in Oakland. So a friend in the church gave us a couple tickets, and we went to the game. Now, you got to picture this. The two of us are sitting there, the only Seahawk fans in the whole place, surrounded by these face-painted, jersey-wearing, studded Raider fans. And... Here's my son Tyler sitting there with his Seahawk hat, his Seahawk shirt, his little Seahawk seat cushion he was sitting on, and he's cheering for his team. And on the field, when the Seahawks did something good, man, he's yelling out for them. And people are looking, and I'm thinking, we ain't going to get out of this alive. There's no way. You know, I was thinking about that this week when I was reading through what happened with Peter and John before the Sanhedrin of Israel. And I thought to myself, here was this little boy rooting for his team, boldly proclaiming his allegiance to the Seahawks, not caring what the Raider fans were thinking or anything that they might do, but simply demonstrating his passion for his team. There wasn't anybody in our section who didn't know that kid was a Seahawk man. And I thought to myself this week how powerfully the kingdom of God would be advancing if each of us were that bold about our allegiance to Jesus. Being unashamed of who was watching or even caring. But so that everyone around us would know there's no doubt those people are following Jesus. That kind of boldness is what marked the early church, made them such powerful witnesses for God. Peter and John were so bold in their proclamation of the gospel that the religious leaders arrested them. You remember in chapter 4, verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people? They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John because it was evening, and they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, here's the temple guards and the Sadducees who had a problem on their hand. Here stands this guy leaping, jumping, praising God. John and Peter have just healed him at the temple gate called Beautiful. He's been crippled since 
He was born over 40 years, and now he's healed. And they're saying, this Jesus, whom you killed, is alive and has just healed this man by faith in his name. Now, the Sadducees had a problem with that because they didn't believe in a resurrection. Now, you know, the leadership was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. You probably heard before. One of the differences was the Pharisees believed there was a resurrection. The Sadducees did not, which is why they were sad. You see, that's how you remember the difference between the two. So here are these religious leaders, and these guys are going around. The living Jesus is back. He's alive, and he's healing these people. That was a problem for them. So they didn't know what to do, so they arrested him. And it was evening, so they threw him in jail, and the next day, they bring him out. And what they encountered is not what they expected. You see, when they brought them out to stand trial the next day before the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court of Israel, these guys had the power to request the, the uh, governor to, to execute people. The Sanhedrin didn't get a couple of simpletons who were afraid for their lives. They got quite the opposite. They encountered two unschooled, ordinary men who astonished them with their boldness. And they all recognized these men have been with Jesus. A boldness empowered by the Holy Spirit and the truth. Two things that ought to embolden every believer to be a witness for Jesus. Because as Luke tells us, God has called us to be his witnesses, proclaiming the gospel with boldness. What does the Holy Spirit do to create that boldness? Well, as we're going to see in these guys, the Holy Spirit convinces people that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. The Holy Spirit convinces people of the reality of what they have seen and heard. And, they, and the Spirit of God convinces people of the power of God released when they pray. Witnesses proclaim the gospel with boldness when they are convinced that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. Here's how Luke put it in verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I was at a sandwich shop yesterday. I noticed a poster on the wall that said... Um, Key tips from Warren Buffett. You know who Warren Buffett is? One of the wealthiest men in the world. So I thought, all right, I'll read the tips. Some of them were good. Some of them were out to lunch, but he's smarter than me, and I liked reading his tips. They don't have the tips of Larry on the wall down there. So many of you may know in 2006, Warren Buffett decided he was going to donate 80% of his $44 billion fortune to five charities. 
the chief charity recipient would be the one for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Microsoft people. I don't know why they need any more money, but that's where he was going to donate it. And it was a very generous thing that he did. It wasn't the donation. It's what he said about it that caught my attention. This is a quote. Buffett said, there is more than one way to get to heaven, and this is a great way. Now, when I read that, I thought, if Warren Buffett is right, and there really is more than one way to heaven, then putting your life on the line the way Peter and John did to speak out that there's only one day, one way, wouldn't make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? Why risk your life if there's all kinds of ways? But if Jesus, Peter, John, and God are right, and Jesus is the only way to God, then boldly proclaiming that, no matter what the consequence, is the right thing to do if you care about Jesus, or you care about his kingdom, or you care about people who are lost without him. That's why Peter, John, and these first Christians were so bold in their witness. They all knew that faith in Jesus was the only way anyone could be saved. In fact, Luke wrote in verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You see, Luke in his gospel had already established the fact that Jesus was the only way to God, the only salvation. Luke's gospel is volume one of a two-volume work. Luke's gospel and the book of Acts were volumes one and two. Acts is the continuation of the story of Jesus through us, through his church. But in the gospel of Luke, Luke had already established that Jesus is our salvation. Do you remember when Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, got word that he was going to have a son that would be the forerunner of the Messiah? Zechariah sang a song, Luke 1, verse 67. His father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That phrase, the horn, means a strong king. So Zechariah is declaring God is going to raise up a strong king for us through the line of David who will be the salvation of his people. That strong king through the line of David who is our salvation is Jesus. Do you remember Simeon's prayer when Joseph and Mary actually brought the infant Jesus to the temple to be dedicated? Simeon looked up to heaven and prayed, Luke 2, verse 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Here's Simeon holding the infant Jesus in his arms, declaring, God, just like you promised me, you wouldn't let me die without seeing the one who would be your salvation. And here he is. His name is Jesus. You see, this is why Peter stands in front of the Supreme Court and boldly proclaims the truth. He knew who Jesus was. He knew he was the only way to God. That's why it said in verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The stone you builders rejected. It was the fulfillment of what Jesus had sung with his disciples at the Last Supper. They would sing during the Passover a thing called the Hallel, a series of songs that are recorded in the Psalms. Psalm 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, and concludes with Psalm 118. And in Psalm 118, 
This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But Jesus also proclaims what? That there is a cornerstone or a stone that the builders are going to reject that will become this chief cornerstone of the kingdom. And Peter and John knew who Jesus was. And so they boldly proclaim, this Jesus you rejected is the stone that's going to save you. In fact, he said, I know you don't believe in a resurrection, but it doesn't change reality. Jesus is alive. This healed man is proof of that. And this living Jesus has healed him. Now, the Sanhedrin would have understood what these guys were saying a little better sometimes than the English does here, because that word for healed in verse 9, ask how he was healed, is the same word in verse 12 that says salvation is found in no one else. Healed, salvation. What Peter and John were telling him is this. This man, by faith in the name of Jesus, was physically healed, and he's standing here right in front of you to prove the living Jesus did this. But this same living Jesus is the only one by faith who can also save your soul. He healed the man by faith in his name. He can save you by faith in his name. And that's why there's no other name. And we're boldly telling you, you rejected him. You crucified him. God raised him up. And now he's the salvation for everyone who believes. You talk about boldness. To lay that out before the very guys who didn't believe a word they were saying. But it didn't matter. The man was standing there completely healed, and they couldn't do anything about it. They knew Jesus was the only way to God. You know, what about you and me? Do you and I believe that Jesus is the only way to God? Do we? Because you or I are living in a world that believes like Warren Buffett. All religions are basically the same. There's many ways to God. Why get bent out of shape over one way? When you hear people saying that stuff, that there's a lot of ways to get to heaven, or there are many religions that are all the same, or it doesn't matter what you believe. When you hear people say that, you say, you know what? You might want to rethink that. Because I can tell you it isn't true. I can tell you confidently that salvation is found in no one else. It's not even logical that there are many ways to God. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Remember, you and I can't save anybody. But we can give them the name of the one who can. And not only being convinced that Jesus is the only way to God, but witnesses proclaim the gospel with boldness when they are convinced of the reality of what they've seen and heard. Luke wrote in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? 
You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let him go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. But the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. We have some really good friends who have let us use their cabin in western Montana or their house in western Montana a number of times. And I was there once with a number of my family members. And I mentioned this once before, but, but it's, it really helps me to illustrate this point. My son Tyler, my son-in-law Jeremy and I were on these quads going up on the side of a mountain on an old logging road through thick brush that had overgrown and weeds that were growing up in the middle of the road. And we're riding down this thing single file because it was so narrow. I was in the front, Jeremy was behind, Tyler was in the back. And we're whipping down through the brush when all of a sudden this mountain lion jumps out in front of me. So I stop the thing, the mountain lion stops, he looks at me, I look at him, he smiles, he walks down <laughs> about a few feet and he goes into the brush. Tyler and Jeremy pull up, Dad, why'd you stop? There's a mountain lion up there. No way, a mountain lion? Yeah, I'm serious, there's a mountain lion up there. Just went down and went in the brush right up there. And no sooner had I said that when a second one jumped out. These things are a lot bigger in person. It gets bigger each time I tell it. But anyway, they, <laughs> they're beautiful. And so he looks at us, he goes down, he goes in the brush. We're standing there amazed at what we've just seen when a third one jumps out, bigger than the first two. This must have been the mom, and those two were like yearling cubs or something. I thought the first two were huge. This one was a lion. It was this dark, gorgeous sable color. And she looks at us. We look at her. She goes down and goes in where the other two went in the brush. And I'm thinking, I don't have a gun. I don't have a knife. They can see us. We can't see them. I think we ought to go. So we turned around. And we left. When we got back, I couldn't wait to tell people what we had seen. Now, our family members believed us, but as I've told this story to others, people would say things like, no. No, you, do you know how rare it is to see a mountain lion, much less three? And a sable-colored one? They are so rare. No. It, it had to be a dog. I said, man, I've seen a lot of dogs. I ain't never seen one like this. My favorite was, maybe it was a deer. A deer with claws and a long, puffy tail. <laughs> no. These are mountain lions, three of them, and one was a gorgeous sable color. You see, I love telling this story because it's true. It was a great experience for the three of us. It'll probably never be repeated. I don't know how pe many people live on the planet who never saw what we saw. And there's a lot of people who don't still believe we saw what we saw. But you know what? I don't stop talking about it because God knows it's true, and I will not stop talking about what I've seen and heard. You see, that is exactly the way these apostles were dealing with this whole issue. The Sanhedrin said, you can't stop speak anymore in this name. And they said, we can't stop. Because everything we've seen and heard, we can't help speaking it. It's the truth. Peter and John had a decision to make. 
They were going to listen to the local authorities, but they were going to do what Jesus said. For them, it was an easy choice. You see, what's interesting to me, they couldn't help speaking what they had seen and heard. These people had lived with Jesus. They had spent three and a half years with him. They'd eaten meals together. They'd seen the miracles. They'd heard him teach. They watched him die. They saw that he rose again. They knew he was alive. They witnessed his ascension into heaven. Everyone knew that these men had been with Jesus. And the more these men persecuted them, the stronger their faith became. Because even that was part of what they had seen and heard from Jesus. Do you remember if you go back in the Gospels, what Jesus told them would happen? You guys are going to live for me, and this is what's going to happen to you. And when it was actually happening, it only reinforced their faith. Matthew 10, verse 16, here's what Jesus told them. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So when you go out to serve me, Jesus said, you're going to get arrested. The very people who claim to represent me are going to persecute you. And in those moments, don't you worry about it. I've got you there to be a witness. And you don't even have to worry about what to say or how to say it because it won't be you talking anyway. It's going to be me. You're my witness. And I'm going to speak through you what I want them to hear. You know, that happened to them, and it only fueled their faith because they realized what Jesus said and heard and what Jesus told us, what we've, said, what we've seen and heard, is actually happening. It's true. And there's people in the world today who are being persecuted that same way, who are staying bold because they realize this is what Jesus said might happen. They remembered what he taught. They remembered all he had done. They remembered his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearing. That's why when the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the day, said, look, don't speak anymore in Jesus' name, but they were remembering Jesus said, you go out and proclaim my name, their decision was easy. Are we going to listen to you? <laughs> Are we going to listen to God? You be the judges. But as for us, we're not going to stop because we can't help speaking what we've seen and heard. People, do you and I believe the reality of what we've seen and heard? Would anyone who saw my life or your life say, there's a person that's been with Jesus. Many times, we don't have that boldness because we have a secondhand faith. I call it a garage sale savior. We got it from our mom or dad, or we got it from the home we were raised in, or we got it from the pastor of our church, or we got it from a book we read, or we got it from somewhere. But it's not a firsthand faith. It's not a real experience with Christ. It's not us hearing his word every day and experiencing his power and presence every day so that we know he's alive. 
because you're rarely going to put your life on the line for somebody else's savior or some savior you just heard about. These people couldn't help speaking what they had seen and heard. You see, Satan is always trying to silence the witness of Jesus through his people, the church. And Satan's pretty effective at it. He uses things like fear and intimidation, or sometimes the lack on the part of many professing believers to really know and be convinced of the reality of the Jesus they're following. But those who know Jesus, who see and hear him and know him, will not be silenced. Because you see, we've heard Jesus speak to us. We've seen the difference he's made in our life. We know what we've seen and heard. And so we boldly proclaim, I will not be silent. Jesus is alive. And not only Jesus is the only way to be saved, and not only the reality of what we've seen and heard, but witnesses proclaim the gospel with boldness when they're convinced of the power of God released through prayer. Luke wrote in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus." After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Every year, right after Thanksgiving, we start decorating our house for Christmas. So I put lights up on the edge of the roof, around the gutter, around the garage, on the trees out front. Carla decorates the inside, puts this twinkly star thing in the kitchen window. And then when we're all done, we just stand back and look at it. And we never plug it in because we like to save electricity. Actually, that's not what we do. In fact, I can hardly wait to plug the thing in so I can stand back and say, yeah, man, that's good. Now, we're never going to win any awards for our lighting decorations. They're pretty simple. But it would be rather silly, wouldn't it, to do all of that work and then not plug it into the power source? You see, that's what these early Christians did in the church when they got the report back from Peter and John. They heard about the witness. They heard about the threats. They heard what these guys said to the Supreme Court of Israel and everybody else who was listening. And they realized, we're going to take that witness that was just given, and we're going to take that witness and plug it into the power source. And we're going to ask God to use that witness to build his kingdom. That's what the disciples were doing when they prayed. That's why Luke wrote in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. 
Evangelist Franklin Graham once said, prayer is the most powerful resource we have in this life. It unleashes the spiritual dynamite that obliterates darkness and despair. Hymn writers William Cowper and John Newton, you know the Amazing Grace guy? They once said together, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees in prayer to God. These Christians knew that the power for the witness had to come from God and that that power would be released when they prayed. And how they prayed became a model for any witness, including you and me. First of all, they prayed with a focus on the power of God's person. Verse 24. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They focused on the power of God's person, the sovereign God, the one who reigns over all things, the one who is the creator of the universe and everything in it is in control of all things, including this situation that was before them. But it wasn't just a focus on the power of God's person. They prayed with a focus on the power of God's purpose. In verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Your purpose has been revealed to us through your servant David, and we're living its fulfillment. They were quoting from Psalm 2, where God revealed to David prophetically a time that would be coming when his son would be rejected by the nations, that he would one day return, and the nations that did not believe in him, the kings and the rulers, would gather their forces together to try to stop the coming of the Son of God. So powerful was their rejection. In fact, if you read on in that Messianic Psalm in Psalm 2, it says when the kings gather together like this to stop the Lord and his anointed, the Lord looks down from heaven and laughs. You think you and your armies are going to stop my purpose? You're going to stop the implementation of my kingdom? You're going to stop the coming of my son? Don't be ridiculous. These disciples understood that there was a purpose in the death of Jesus. There was a purpose in his burial and resurrection. There was a purpose in their proclamation. There was a purpose in John and Peter getting arrested. There was a purpose in them being before the Sanhedrin, and there was a purpose for them to be praying. It was God's eternal purpose being fulfilled in them, and they believed that God would do it when they prayed. But it wasn't just prayer with the focus on God's person or prayer with the focus on the power of God's purpose. They prayed with the focus on the power of God's plan. Verse 27, indeed, Herod And Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand would happen. They acknowledged none of the events of the past are are a mistake. They're not an accident. They're all part of your plan. 
Peter and John's arrest, the death and resurrection of Jesus, even down to the people you chose, like Herod and Pontius Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. All of these guys are part of your plan, including our prayers and our witness are all part of your plan. So they prayed, you who are the sovereign Lord, creator of the universe, who fulfills his eternal purposes and works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will and his eternal plan, what did they ask him to do? Verse 29, now Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Give us the power, God. Give us the power. Verse 31. So God did. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Literally shaking. Vibrating with the very power of God in the room. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Warren Wiersbe once wrote, they didn't ask for protection. They asked for power. They didn't ask for fire to destroy their enemies. They asked for God's fire to light up their witness. They didn't ask God to take away the opposition or change their circumstance. They asked God to give them boldness to face the opposition and use the circumstance for his glory. These people realized, as did the apostles, that you can't be an effective witness in this spiritual war without the power that comes from God. Warren Wiersbe once wrote, the name of Jesus Christ has not lost its power, but many of God's people have lost their power because they have stopped praying to the sovereign God who gives it. Remember, prayer is not getting our will done. It's letting God know that we're available for him to get his will done through us. His will is that we would be people who witness with boldness. I like history. I learn a lot from it. I particularly like some parts of world history, like a lot of American history. If you're an American history buff, visiting the battlefield at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is a moving experience. Many consider the battle between North and South to have been won over those three days in July, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863. Many famous battles took place there. Thousands of lives were lost. But probably one of the most decisive battles in the war, many historians think, turned the tide for the North. It took place on July 2nd, 1863. The main volunteer infantry regiment of the Union Army was led by a man named Joshua Chamberlain. He was not a soldier. He was an ordinary man. He was a student of theology and a teacher 
a professor in a school. But when duty called, Chamberlain answered, and he, claimed in, he climbed into the ranks and became a colonel in the main regiment. If you've ever been to Gettysburg, there's a place called Little Round Top. It's a hill, really. Famous battles fought there. But up behind Little Round Top, there's a wood, a woods with a slope going down to a valley where a very famous battle took place that may have won the war for the North. On July 2nd, 1863, Chamberlain and his 300 soldier regiment were all that stood between the Confederates and certain defeat at the Battle of Gettysburg. I was reading a piece from Mark Batterson who described some of the details that day. At 2.30 p.m., the 15th and 47th Alabama regiments of the Confederate Army charged, but Chamberlain and his men held their ground on that hill in the woods. Then followed a third, fourth, and fifth charge. By the last charge, only 80 Union soldiers were left. 220 had been killed out of the 300. Chamberlain himself was knocked down by a bullet that hit his belt buckle. But the 24-year-old school teacher got right back up. It was his date with destiny. Sergeant Tozier of the Union forces informed Chamberlain that no reinforcements were coming and his men were down to one bullet each. Chamberlain knew he needed to act decisively. The lookout informed Colonel Chamberlain that the Confederates were forming rank. Two regiments of Confederate soldiers were attempting their sixth charge. The rational thing to do at that moment with no ammunition and no reinforcements would have been to surrender. But Chamberlain made a bold decision. In full view of the enemy, Chamberlain climbed onto the barricade of stones they were hiding behind, lifted his sword, and yelled to his troops, charge, in full view of the enemy. They could see exactly what he was doing. His men fixed their bayonets, and they started running at the Confederate army, which vastly outnumbered them. They caught them off guard by executing a military maneuver called a great right wheel. And in what ranks as one of the most improbable victories in military history, 80 Union soldiers captured 4,000 Confederates in five minutes. Historians believe that if Chamberlain had not charged, the Confederate army would have gained the high ground, won the Battle of Gettysburg, and eventually won the war. One man's courage and boldness saved the day, saved the war, and saved the Union. What was it about Chamberlain that made him so bold in the face of impossible odds? He was convinced there was only one way to save his men. And that was the charge with a military maneuver called the right wheel. And so he charged. He was convinced that what he had been trained in in his military preparation could actually work. And so he went forward and used it as he was trained to do what he had seen and heard. And he was convinced of the power of surprise. And so he used that power to overwhelm an enemy that vastly outnumbered him. People, when I read his story, 
and I've visited that site and walked down the hill through those woods, it's hard to even believe that such a victory could be won. But it was. Imagine what could happen if you and I deployed such boldness in the face of the enemy that we're against. Satan is the enemy. He holds people God loves in his bondage. And he doesn't want us to let them know the truth. But if we're convinced that Jesus is the only way to be saved, if we're convinced of what we've seen and heard, and we're convinced that we can't save anybody but God will when the power of God is released through prayer, then nothing can stop God's army. Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. If there was ever a day when God needs his witnesses, it's now. A day when, just like the early church, we can proclaim the good news with boldness. God, you can produce that same boldness in us just the way you did for them because it was the Holy Spirit doing it through the truth when they were convinced that you were the only way to God, convinced of the reality of what they had seen and heard, convinced of the power of God released in prayer. Father, can you get us back to those basics? We don't want to be arrogant. We don't want to be annoying. We're not out there to be proud. But we are not an army that is retreating in defeat. We're an army that's already won. So God, give us the boldness. Enable your servants to speak with boldness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.